I'm Andrew Faust, here at the Center for Bioregional Living with Permaculture Perspectives. And today I'm going to start with my format I've been using last couple podcasts. We're going to have a couple readings and connect them with a theme. The theme for today is why I teach what I teach and how I teach. And so these are themes that I feel are relevant to providing people with the tools for the transformation required in our present society to address its inconsistencies, shall we say, at the least, (laughs) to address its exploitative, abusive, extractive, self-destructive, and toxic behavior. That's another way to describe it. And I'm going to start off with a reading. I think we'll just get right into it. With no further ado, this is from one of my favorite expose journalism books, which I highly recommend as a citizen of the United States to understand what we're up against. What do we need to change? How are we going to change it? And why do I teach what it is that I teach and how it is? Right? It's through informing and empowering people with real information and then trusting the conscientious, caring, intelligent human beings will come to the same conclusions as you and I have. This country is broken. The entire world economic model is a toxic syndrome of self-destruction based on an agenda that benefits nobody but a very, very, very small number of individuals who are sick, twisted, and megalomaniacs standing on the shoulders of hundreds and hundreds of years of exploitative concentration of wealth. The last 500 years, in the very least, has been the rape, loot, pillage, and plunder of the planet in the name of getting the hands into the colonial powers. And now, the oppressor is the United States, and and in particular, the United States military. And so, you know, as we know that our entire media is owned by the weapons manufacturing industry, and that they make a lot more money off of weapons than they do off of selling us television sets, although they make a nice chunk off of that too. Showing my dated this there with the TV reference. Let's say computers, whatever product it is, it's why it is that I'm really not a fan of tech in general, is it's just a bunch of nonsense and a waste of time. I mean, I'm appreciative of your ability right now to be listening to this podcast, which could be a radio broadcast over a radio signal. We happen to use a lot of digital media these days. Do I think it's better? Frankly, no. Not in the least. 
And I think a lot of the misconceptions that we have as a population have to do with this tendency to stare at a screen to get a definition of reality rather than pulling our head up and looking around and asking some very simple but profound questions as citizens in this country. And that question is, what is the true cost of the military-industrial complex? And what is the true cost of the computers and the toys and the trinkets that they've thrown to us as hand-me-downs as Rosalie Bertel, a PhD physicist in Gray Nun, talks about? We need to stop taking hand-me-downs from the military. So this book is The Threat at Home, Confronting the Toxic Legacy of the U.S. Military by Seth Schulman. Who's Seth Schulman? Let's see. Seth Schulman, whose research for this book was supported by John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, is an award-winning science journalist based in Massachusetts. All right, so this is from his book. The chapter is Minefield in the Heartland. And he's writing about a site here, is the opening chapter, that is in Madison, Indiana. And the site in this passage is referred to often as JPG, which is referring to the Jefferson Proving Ground, a sprawling army facility on the outskirts of town. The National Military Toxic Burden is a figurative minefield, just as JPG is a literal one. Like JPG, the nationwide military toxic waste problem is monumental. A nightmare of almost overwhelming proportion. And like JPG bombs, the military's toxic legacy is sequestered from public view waiting, politically at least, to explode. Largely unfettered by environmental regulations, the U.S. armed forces have contaminated virtually every one of their installations in the United States, and undoubtedly hundreds more around the world as well. As top officials at the Pentagon and the Department of Energy, which manages the military's nuclear weapons production complex, are now beginning to acknowledge the toxic legacy left by our nation's military infrastructure may well constitute the largest and most serious environmental threat this country faces. The Pentagon, but in their own account, now states the dangerous... Hazardous wastes stored or disposed of improperly at virtually every U.S. military installation in every state may currently contaminate more than 20,000 sites on land currently or formerly owned by the U.S. Defense Department. At these locations, millions of of tons of toxic wastes have fouled thousands of square miles of soil and polluted the air and groundwater in communities across the country and at hundreds of overseas bases. Sadly, despite recent waste minimization, in quotes, programs, 
The military continues to dump large quantities of deadly chemicals improperly with little oversight or public accountability. Corroboration of this dire environmental picture came in early 1990 when the National Governors Association, a powerful advocate of the concerns of states, issued a particularly virulent condemnation of the federal government's handling of toxic wastes. In it, the state's executive officers expressed their collective outrage at the federal government's, quote, blatant disregard for its own environmental laws and at a, quote, hamstrung EPA forced to sit by as basic environmental statutes and regulations are routinely ignored by military and other federal facilities. Virtually every state has within its borders federally owned or operated facilities and environmental violations and compliance problems, the report notes, adding that the U.S. government's facilities across the country operate, quote, at health and environmental standards below the standard it mandates for private firms, which isn't enforced either very often, by the way. The report addresses all federally owned facilities and criticizes the reckless contamination wrought at the nation's 17 nuclear weapons production facilities run by the Department of Energy. For the breadth of its violations, the report singles out the Department of Defense as the worst federal offender of all. At JPG the Jefferson Proving Ground. As at every base, the Department of Defense is vested with the responsibility to clean up its own environmental messes. But, as several members of Congress have pointed out, the Pentagon's own accounting of its record ranks it among the worst violators of hazardous waste laws in the country. Out of the roughly 20,000 sites of suspected toxic contamination identified so far by the Pentagon, on land currently or formerly owned by the military worldwide, only 404 have actually been cleaned up as of the most recent public accounting. Finally, as at Jefferson Proving Ground, a real cleanup of this toxic legacy may not be possible, either technically or politically. The obstacles to environmental restoration at military installations are formidable, and not the least of them is monetary. Between the wastes from the Energy Department's nuclear production facilities and those of the Pentagon's bases, cost estimates for the cleanup run into the hundreds of billions of dollars. As more and more cases of environmental mismanagement have been disclosed, these projections have grown exponentially in the past few years and undoubtedly still underestimate the cost of tackling this toxic heritage. In the carefully considered words of Barry Breen, editor of the Environmental Law Reporter, 
and a former environmental lawyer for the Army. The situation ranks among the most intractable environmental problems we face today. While the costs continue to mount, one thing is certain. Without a concerted political and technological effort, the military's toxic legacy will continue to haunt us, polluting our water, contaminating our land, and damaging our health. To date, not one of the Energy Department's production facilities has been decontaminated, and Pentagon cleanup efforts are complete at less than 2% of those waste sites identified on current and former military installations. Some of the remaining 98% of the sites, like the, Jeffers like the Jefferson Proving Ground, already seem destined to become what Michael Caracado, the Pentagon's former top environmental officer, has called National Sacrifice Zones. Cheery, I always like to start out with gravity, something that grounds us in the reality of why we need to organize, collaborate, and collectively move towards a society of health and well-being and interrelatedness and responsibility to each other to create a caring, loving, healthy world for ourselves and our children to grow up in for many generations to come. And what that looks like is not a world where we allow militaries to become so exorbitantly oversized and obscene that they destroy the entire landscape within the very country that they are purportedly being so funded to the teeth to defend. This is clearly a self-contradictory scenario, and in my view, the foundational place where we can begin to change it is education. Clearly, before that, the foundation is the family and our community where we grow up. And within that, as an emerging structure, may come about something that is akin to this term that we use called education. I want to be very careful and, and distinguish what I'm talking about when I'm talking about education from a, a lot of preconceptions that are out there, especially in the in the wealthy, privileged class worlds of aristocratics and bourgeois and yuppie ideas of what the point of education is. Oh, and I forgot to add technocrats. So, you know, education, when I'm referring to what I mean by it, why I teach what I teach and how I teach, has to do with opening our eyes up to the piece that I just read to you, for instance. All my high school kids appreciated learning about the true nature of what was going on, and we, I showed them maps, and they, they would call up to learn about Superfund sites that were near their house, not super fun, as many of them thought I was saying at first, but super fund, meaning dumping vast quantities of taxpayer money into cleaning up your responsible toxic wastelands that private corporations left and ran away laughing all the way to the bank, with our high school kids being able to research about the 
ooh, truly soiled undergarments of the industrial sector of the United States that are right under their noses in some of the highest cost real estate in the country, this being Chester County, Pennsylvania, and the main line. These areas have, you know, the Paoli Railroad Yard is a super fun site with PCBs. I mean, we are talking about such high concentration of Superfund that I knew it would be a really rich and interesting, empowering design assignment because alternatively, we also were taking them to go work on organic farms and biodynamic orchards and learning about building their own houses out of local materials and earth berm greenhouses so that all of these children in high school were learning both about the true nature of the problem which I think is empowering when you couple that with a solution. And as educators, I also believe it's our moral and ethical responsibility to speak truth, to show openness and vulnerability in ourselves as far as having all the answers. In other words, we don't. And to also know how to lead and role model and set a good example by being caring and being humble and being self-aware and being well-educated and self-cultivated and skilled in a diversity of things so that we can awaken the next generations to what really matters. Which I'll put simply is this, where our food comes from, how healthy the landscapes are that we're growing up within in terms of air quality, water quality, and human quality of life. Is everyone doing well or only some doing well? When all are doing well, we are entering into a world where true health has been achieved. As long as everyone isn't well taken care of in a healthy landscape with healthy air and healthy water and healthy food, then you can't have healthy people. It's very, very difficult, let's just say. And you, you may be able to achieve it, but not what I'm going to refer to here as true health. True wealth, which is not hoarding a bunch of nuclear bombs in the places in this country that you think nobody cares about and then leaving them as a nuclear wasteland for 10,000 years to come. which is not <clears throat> forcing our native people here on a trail of tears out to what they thought was worthless wasteland and then generations later mining uranium on it and leaving tailings all over the place and trying to then frack it and crack it and destroy everything that a already broken peoples ever had. So there's a lot of work to do as educators. And that work does not include being an apologist for all of that. In, you know, in fact, quite the contrary, right? Quite the contrary. Now, the work for us as educators is to be the best expose journalist that we can about the true nature of the problem with articulate assessment tools that make it tangibly, empirically identifiable. Because to me, the ability to be surgical and smart about knowing where is the groundwater contaminated, 
Where, what is a Superfund site and a brownfield, and why do we have so many of them in this country? And what is the true cost of this economy, whatever you want to call it, which is primarily a fossil fuel-powered, nuclear material-supplied, long-distance transportation global economy? That economy is something that we can do nothing but a better job then. It is the worst idea ever concocted in human history. And so stepping away from the presupposition that in some way we need to, as educators, encourage children to give two hoots about a fossil-fueled, hyper-extended, long-distance, globalized infrastructure. Abandon it. The new focus paying attention to where you are and who you are, and creating real security, real well-being, and a sense of it, and the only thing that it will ever emerge from at a foundational, visceral, energetic level, is when you live in a place where a lot of what it is that you need to have comfort is right at hand without a crazy footprint of fossil fuel nuclear-powered inputs. Just to have the lights on at night, just to have dinner on our table, just to have clothes on our back, just to have a caring and loving community who isn't overworked, underpaid, stressed, and on mood-stabilizing drugs. You think we need to be doing those things to ourselves? I think Americans have often been convinced that somehow we've got it great here when in fact... What we have is a set of conditions that the rest of the world looks at and wonders why we've put up with them for so long. It's not like we don't have the power in our tax structure to eliminate the things that are actually making us sick and killing us prematurely with a, you know, average shortening of lifespan, which has occurred in this country. It's going down now. Average lifespan of Americans has been. Over the last several decades, people are dying younger. Well, there's so much pollution in this society, in the United States, due to our lack of enthusiasm to turn off this nonsense that it's all about some form of consumption of fossil fuels and of mind-extracted and refined materials when, in fact, we're on a planet in outer space circling a giant thermonuclear furnace that spews vast quantities of energy over the Earth's surface every single day, where we've got a planet spinning a thousand miles per hour east and creating very, very powerful wind and tidal systems all over the planet. And instead, we're mining deep into the Earth and extracting these stored rare materials and then burning them and spreading them all over the planet in order to do things like cook dinner power our homes, have clothes on our back, and feel that we're all taken care of as human beings on a planet in outer space. And the way for us to take care of each other is to create more than enough where we are, which is a very, very easy task when we begin to put our efforts together to grow more, garden more, care more about the places that we call home, and band together as a human community to protect them and to enhance the health of them. And we'll find the path forward is so wonderfully easy that we'll be 
laughing about this awful, misdirected, hopefully short side road that we took to this dead end where we just splintered off into the wilderness and decided to go back to the earth, back to nature, back to each other, and away from the machine and away from the technocratic nightmare of self-destruction. So I wanted to share with you both what I just have been, which I really appreciate your attention and listening to these ideas that come from a life of exploring how can we use education, how can I change the world in the way that I think is one of the most powerful ways to transform society because I so deeply see a need to transform this society. So this is an old writing that I found that I had written about 1998 when I was teaching at Upatina's, a open community democratic run school where the students had equal say and equal vote in terms of resolving issues or taking care of problems that came up on campus and voting in new programs and and teachers were offering classes in the high school where I both graduated from in 1986 and then came back and taught for 10 years there from 92 to 2002. And at Apatinas, they it's not a free school in, in the sense that the students uh, decide everything about classes or run the school, but it's free in the sense that they don't have to go to class when they're there as long as they're you know, not doing anything disruptive. They could be out in the woods, playing, doing things, and as long as their parents were okay with footing the bill for a private school and them not going to class. <laughs> right? So at Apatinas, without getting into a lot of details about the curriculum, one of the things I really appreciated about teaching there and as a student there is they struck a balance between what we could refer to as structured learning and unstructured learning. And well, it definitely abided by the philosophy of student-directed learning, we as teachers were leading the program with curriculum that we created that satisfied the requirements to get a state-certified diploma from the state of Pennsylvania. And so that structure was helpful because it enabled us as teachers to teach truly meaningful versions of four English, three science, three math, three social studies, half a PE, some health that they sprinkle in there. And uh, we could do that in a way that fit the Carnegie learning units that the state wanted to see in a course outline. And I was teaching Howard Zinn's A People's History of United States to high schools as their history credit. Now, what was interesting about this specific as well is that students didn't get grades. They wrote a self-evaluation about what they felt they learned in the class, which I also really appreciated as a process. And then I, as a teacher of a class, would write comments on it. 
and then that would be entered into a file. And so at Apatina's, you had this way of nurturing children's ability to really think about what it was that they were learning, why they were learning it, and have adults who really could also lead them in a meaningful way further into the development of their understanding and knowledge of the world in a way that opened up a sense of curiosity, wonder, self-discovery, and developing their own confidence about knowing. Not knowing through things like route memorization, for instance. And so well in that atmosphere is a teacher, which I can't give enough thanks for those years, honestly. Uh, what, what a gift it was to be able to teach at a school with such a great staff that was creative and collaborative and such a great student body. You know, a K through 12 school, 100 children, very typically was about our ratio and we'd have about 60 in the upper school, about 40 in the lower school as we called them. And they had separate meetings, the lower school had their meeting, the upper school had theirs. And that is really the foundation of much of what I've put into my adult education program, which I grew after homesteading in West Virginia at my permaculture-designed homestead, which I created to learn about the things that I studied in 1996 at the farm with Peter Bain, Chuck Marsh, Andrew Goodhart-Brown, Patricia Allison, Arjuna. We had a great group of teachers, and it was a wonderful place to learn permaculture at the Eco Village Training Center with Albert Bates. And I continued to stay connected with the farm for a number of years after that. So I have a lot of life experience in communities and the different applications of permaculture. And I would say my major life work and application has been as a teacher, as an educator, who sees it as a very important framework for changing the world in a manner that is unusually comprehensive, interdisciplinary, and open-minded. And that's what drew me to it, and that's why I've been teaching permaculture for or, oh, over 15 years now. So 10 years in high school, and so in 1998, most of the way through my years there teaching, I'm taking kids in the vans to go work on the farms and to learn about restoration and to learn about natural building, and I'm also teaching them about the pollution legacy and the true cost of the present system, subtext, sub-message, this system has to change, you're going to know how to change it, here's the tools, right? So, I found this piece that I'm going to read. And this was some of my thinking in 1998 about curriculum and why do we teach what we teach. We need to present the world for all the confusing mess that it is and take responsibility for our part in it. We must do this so we can begin to change human society into an agent of healing and regeneration, not an agent 
of destruction. We are all in this together, and education plays a critical role in our society. Schools need to enhance children's experience of how to create healthy ways of living, ways of providing ourselves with what we need that are in harmony with nature. If we understand our place in the evolutionary web of life, we will honor our interrelatedness with the ecosystems where we live. Schools need to help to reconnect humanity to their proper role as stewards and caretakers of planet Earth. The Earth is our home, and we have verified this empirically and scientifically. Now, let's ponder its implications philosophically, spiritually, and in terms of the... What am I writing? In terms of the values of education. Now we can begin to see what this demands. More than just another branch of science. More than what we can address with our existing way of looking at the world and ourselves. Humanity needs to recognize its utter and complete interconnectedness and dependency upon the web of life for all that humanity receives. The web is where our potentiality resides. Whatever we do to the web, we do to ourselves, as Chief Seattle said. This means we need a culture of care and contemplation, not one of greed, competition, and quick growth. Schools can be a place where we begin this shift to caring and thinking deeply about the world and encouraging our children to care and to identify their role, their power to create change, to heal the wounds of the planet by participating in the affairs of the world in an intentional and conscientious way. We can revitalize democracy in America by re-engaging ourselves and our children with our power to protect and regenerate the air, water, soils, and communities of this beautiful land. Schools need to help engage their students in healing their local ecologies by offering real hands-on help in stream bank restoration, small-scale organic local agriculture, sustainable energy, natural building, solar design. In general, in the work of regenerating local ecologies and local economies. We need to engage schools and our children with projects locally that, are ec that have ecological integrity. Schools can help these projects to be more successful. The children will learn the practicalities of healthier ways to make a thing, to make a living. The more we engage in regenerating our local ecologies and local economies, the better the quality of life will be for present and future generations. The more we disengage with our local ecologies, economies, and communities, the more we will destroy local ecologies, economies, and communities. We need to reconnect ourselves, our schools, our children, and our whole philosophy of education to our our responsibilities for the well-being of each other and the entire web of life. 
Schools need to be a place where we cultivate an inquisitiveness that is questioning whether or not the choices we make are good ones. Good is defined relative to how those choices impact the world. Will my choice cause activities to happen which will take away from the quality of life for future generations by causing long-term pollution problems? We need to cultivate a society where people think about each dollar they spend and what is it going to support. A society where we deeply question new technologies, where we put public welfare above private profits and individual gains. A society where we see ourselves as intrinsically inseparable, a thread in the web of life. A society where we will consider more of the long-term needs to see patterns and understand how to, how to comprehend the intangible impacts of our decisions. We must offer practical information about genetically engineered crops and the myths of scarcity. Schools and educational endeavors have the opportunity to help in offering a truly safe environment for critically analyzing long-term questions like, where are we going as a species collectively? Where have we come from? To what do we owe our existence? What is necessary for the human survival and quality of life on this planet? How much longer can we keep going at this pace with this present lifestyle? And how are we going to work together to heal the mistakes humanity has made and to create a healthier world for today's and tomorrow's children to live with? For they cannot live without a healthy earth home. Teachers need to think deeply about how and what they teach and how is it helping in the needs of the world today. Not just does this help a child to survive in the existing society, but will the things I am teaching and how I am teaching them, will it help with the long-term well-being of the species in terms of is it belonging children? Is it helping them to understand how to regenerate and enhance the well-being? The necessities of life from water, air, soil, and a caring and loving community. Without these, we cannot or would not want to live. Without a healthy earth, what would life be? We must ask this because we are so close to destabilizing the whole planet's life support systems. We must refocus on stabilizing the life signs of planet Earth. We are in an ecological crisis, whether or not we are all aware of it. And right now, what we need is awareness, so we can collectively, not just individually, begin to address what is a shared ultimate reality for our entire species. Without a healthy atmosphere, without clean water and healthy soils, we cannot live. We are squandering all of it, at exorbitantly rapid rates. Ecological literacy entails seeing things in the wholeness, seeing the implications and interconnections between, for instance, corporate profits and public welfare. The people's water, air, and soil and genetic integrity are at risk. 
so that grant corpor so that corporations can stay in business so the giant corporations can stay in business we subsidize the dirty industries the most 36% of rivers and streams of 50% of lakes and ponds are contaminated reflecting this ecological literacy and seeing things in their full context is politically threatening as you can see this must be engaged and diffused by understanding how to use our citizen power in this democracy to organize and resist exploiting the public for private profits. Ecological literacy also means being able to design ecologically sound, locally adapted and renewable energy, food, medicine, shelter, and fiber, providing landscapes and ecosystems. As David Orr says, quote, we are still educating the young as if there were no planetary emergency. The crisis we face is first and foremost one of mind, perception, and values. Hence, it is a challenge to those institutions presuming to shape minds, perceptions, and values. It is an educational challenge. More of the same kind of education can only make things worse. This is not an argument against education, but rather an argument for the kind of education that prepares people for lives and livelihoods suited to a planet with a biosphere that operates by the laws of ecology and thermodynamics. This is still a quote from Earth. Um, this is, these are quotes from David Orr's book, Ecological Literacy. Quote, The skills, aptitudes, and attitudes necessary to industrialize the Earth, however, are not necessarily the same as those that will be needed to heal the earth or to build durable economies and good communities. They must begin the great work of repairing as much as possible the damage done to the earth in the past 200 years of industrialization. We know the necessities of life. This is back to my writing. We know the necessities of life, and they are healthy air to breathe, clean water to drink, and healthy food grown in healthy soil. We need children to learn about ways of providing ourselves with what we need that are commensurate with ensuring that these necessities are not jeopardized by how we grow our food, for instance. The EPA and DEP of Pennsylvania categorize agriculture as the single largest source of non-point pollution, both nationally and in the state of Pennsylvania. We need children to learn about how to design regionally adapted, diversified, local food production, which is organic and ecologically sound. We can increase abundance and vitality of both our diets and our landscapes. We need children to learn about regionally-based energy, infrastructures that are diversified and optimized off of natural energy flows without interrupting them, windmills, geothermal, passive and active solar, micro-hydro, hydrogen fuel cells, biofuels, and a blend of these based on each bioregion's resources. This type, and I would add to that tidal and biogas and solar thermal hot water, 
and I would question this old thinking I had on geothermal, just as a side note. Back to the text here. This type of mosaic is more secure by virtue of shortened distance for transmission, and it is lower impact by virtue of scale of maintaining smallness and diversity, and this diverse local production model provides many, many jobs. I'll be on a Renew New York meeting today at noon with our senator for climate jobs justice recovery that is a coalition that I recommend you check out because they are on point with their focus for how to combine addressing climate issue, how to create green jobs, and how to bring about social justice and how these are all interconnected phenomenons that can be addressed and need to be addressed in their interconnectedness and in simultaneity. So that's Renew New York and check them out. So back to our reading here, just three more pages of what I'd like to share with you. I appreciate your attention and diving a little more deeper into some of my writings about education here. I'll be continuing in the future podcasts to be reading from excerpts of the book I'm working on, which is a bioregional economy and what does that look like. And I'll be figuring out what the final title of it is, but at present, the working title is Earth is Our Home. Thank you, Ducks, for that input. Here we go. These skills and understandings will evolve from schools focusing on them as invaluable knowledge bases to be building and by them connecting with local people and projects involved in increasing local self-reliance in an ecologically sound way. This includes protecting and restoring local ecologies, especially stream banks, wetlands, as they are diversity reservoirs. Schools need to garden on campus. Sustainable agriculture must be a focus area, along with an understanding of the importance and function of biodiversity and earth processes and human well-being. Schools need to connect with local CSAs, biodynamic operations, tree planting projects, places and people who have built solar shelters with local materials so that students can learn by helping these valuable pursuits into ecologically intelligent designs which preserve and enhance the integrity of the natural systems which we depend on for our very existence. Those of clean, pure water to drink, clean, healthy air to breathe, healthy food grown from healthy soil harvested as close to consumption as possible, and a caring and loving community, Anything we do individually or collectively as a society and anything our children are learning about which does not enhance our ability to restore these absolute essentials for our well-being is a distraction from the real work. This should be education's criteria for how to teach and what to teach. We need this paradigm shift for the sake of human survival in the long run. Schools need to reconnect with their local communities and local landscapes, and their buildings need to reflect an understanding of the relationship between advanced cognitive processes and good air, natural light, and natural color tones. By rebuilding local ecologies and economies, we can increase the productivity of our bioregions. 
and clean and protect our waterways and have employment opportunities closer to where our homes are, giving us more time to be involved in this incredibly important endeavor of the education of our children. In awakening their sense of wonder and understanding of their power to create change for the better, how to repeat less of the mistakes of the past, heal the wounds of the earth, and have most of what we need in life coming from a very short distance away from our doorsteps. This is the world we can create together with the children in this process we call education and learning. We desperately need ecological literacy so we can both identify the disease, understand, and how to design healthy ways of living for ourselves and future generations. In a world that is in denial about its disease, ecological literacy is the awareness of the disease of this mass production industrial technocratic understanding of the nature of the disease and the skills and the knowledge involved in healing and regenerating our wounded Mother Earth. We must awaken biophilia, a visceral, emotional, and personal sense of kindred with all of life. And so there you have it. Today, those are my thoughts I wanted to share with you about education and exploration of how do we address social ills of our time and the ecological hemorrhages of health on this planet and begin to put back together our world for ourselves and for future generations. So appreciate your time and look forward to hearing from you. Any feedback or thoughts? We're running some small nascent homeschooling classes here for families. Most of the students are 8 to 13 and we're doing it one day a week and you're welcome to join us if you're in the geography You'll find it on the social networks, and you'll also see it's on my website. You can send me an email, and I'll send you information about it. So thank you all. Be well, and continue to enjoy your time on planet Earth. Thank mm-hmm. you.
Thank mm-hmm. you.